everybody, it's Brad from the Salvage Title Podcast here, wrapping up the three-part series, talking about the inter-recessionary period of automobiles that were sold between 2008 and 2020. Uh, as I've introduced it in the other two episodes, basically we're summing things up based around the idea that, you know, between the recession that kind of kicked off right around election season of 2008 and the one that it officially started here in February of 2020, well, I guess it's now June as we talk about it, uh, there was a lot of weird stuff going on from, you know, the fuel crisis to the obvious financial crisis to changes in tastes of automobiles shifting dramatically from small cars to larger and larger uh, crossovers, SUVs, and pickup trucks. Uh, there's a lot of weird things we can take away. And, you know, obviously we just got out of it. It's going to be years and years away until, you know, people really get a firm handle on what this, you know, 12 years really meant to the automobile industry. And I don't know if we're ever going to look back on it the same way that we look at, you know, the malaise era from the late seventies, uh, to the early eighties for American cars or the way we celebrate the rad era now among so many of us on Twitter and Instagram and so much more. Uh, this one is a little bit different. And so, uh, in the first episode, we talked about some surprises and disappointments. Uh, the second one, we talked about what I thought were the best and worst cars of the era uh, this one, we're going to just kind of talk generally about where things were at, uh, because so much did actually happen. So winding the clock back to 2008, when a lot of this kicked off, I was in college. Uh, I was driving, what, a Toyota Celica at the time. Um, you know, cars were okay. Uh, I think we're, we had a pretty weird excess time uh going on before that with the escalade uh and the lincoln navigator becoming these big popular things the hummer h2 uh more tahos and yukons than you could ever count uh it was all about excess in every way size and shape uh the fuel economy it just didn't matter uh in any way shape or form in the segment and you were seeing a lot of contrition start with small cars and medium-sized cars where uh, certain models and lineups were being drawn down quite a bit. And you were really seeing the cost-cutting in the development of those vehicles uh, because trucks and SUVs and crossovers were where these car companies were going to be making the most amount of money. Uh, you know, GM in particular was leveraging so much of their energy when it came to R&D uh, and ultimately promotional materials and so much else on crossovers, and S or I guess it wasn't even crossovers at this point, it was full-size SUVs, uh, that, you know, cars like the Malibu went to absolute shit. Uh, you know, Oldsmobile went away. Uh, Buick almost died. Uh, so much had happened. And by the time we got to 2008, you know, the financial collapse happened with Lehman Brothers. Um, things were looking pretty shaky by the time Obama got elected. Uh, and then come 2009, GM and Chrysler declare bankruptcy. Uh, the government ends up buying into both of them, bailing them out. Uh, Ford had secured financing for themselves. Uh, things were shaky around the world. Fiat was talking about how much it needed to have these alliances to save itself. Uh, they ended up buying... Fiat Chrysler from the, or sorry, they ended up buying Chrysler from the government, creating FCA. GM 
basically paid off their loans, came out the other side as the quote-unquote new GM. Uh, and Ford had Alan Mulally as president uh, during this time frame that really signified a major change for the way that an American automobile company uh, had been operating. Uh, for the better part of 20 years before that, the United States vehicle market uh, was basically run completely separately from operations in Europe, Asia, Australia, uh, because the market was so different. And yet, there were these little peaks and valleys here and there where some models might go from one part of the world to the other uh, and have some great success or have some significant failures. But ultimately, they would learn that if you developed cars, crossovers, SUVs, pickup trucks for everyone, you might sell a lot more of them than what you think you were originally going to do. So Malali came in and he was like, hey, you guys killed the Taurus. Why? You guys got rid of all of these other things that should have kept around. Why? What is going on? Why are we selling a different version of the Focus in Europe and not in the United States when small car sales are very, very important? Why are we selling a different version of a mid-sized family sedan in Europe than what we are in the United States when this segment is very important? And ultimately, he created this one Ford policy that uh, gave us a lot of very important vehicles. You know, the Focus uh, finally realigned itself globally, um, which was a huge deal. We got the Fiesta in the United States for the first time. Uh, we got the Fusion here in the U.S., became the Mondeo for the rest of the world. Uh, everything was coming together. Ford was doing great. Uh, they really led the way in becoming this global car-making company that you know, saw the market for what it was, and it was something where people had the same needs, and if you build the same car, it costs you less, and you can be more flexible in updating it in different markets, and it just worked, and it was magic, and it could not believe how quickly Ford turned things around. And the other key thing is, is that Ford really seemed to be ahead of the curve when it came to the gas crunch. Uh, gasoline, of course, jumped from what was it, 30 some odd dollars a barrel, maybe even less than that at some points uh, in the mid-aughts, uh, to over $100 a barrel uh, by the time of the peak recession era. And, you know, when you're paying more than $4 for gasoline, uh, that really began to constrict, or constrict uh, what you could buy and operate on a daily basis and, you know, not get completely hosed uh, in fuel costs. You know, a lot of people drove F-150s for work. A lot of people drove, uh, you know, Ford Escapes for work. A lot of people were, you know, commuting long distances. And Ford recognized that something needed to be done to provide Americans with that power uh, and reliability that they expect uh, in a much more fuel-efficient package. And they developed the EcoBoost technology uh, to put in these vehicles that, ultimately, you know, provided the power of a V6 in the packaging of a small four-cylinder or power of a V8 with a V6, yada, yada, yada. It goes up the ladder. You get it. Uh, you know, EcoBoost, for all that it is marketing speak for the most part, uh, these engines are very good. You know, they seem to be relatively reliable. Uh, they deliver plenty of power. They do suck up a lot more fuel when you're putting the boot down to get them to move. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's something that came out of this era in Ford and has dramatically transformed the 
idea of turbocharging where, you know, turbos were very common in the 80s for a while, uh, and then they went away. Uh, engine sizes got very large, they got less efficient, um, but they, you know, were packing in the power much more than they had been in the 80s, and then as fuel demands changed again, turbochargers came back, and now GM has turbos out the wazoo, Honda's got it, Toyota's apparently going to start getting into turbocharging. Uh, I mean, everyone's doing it at this point, and uh, it really seemed to indicate a big change in the marketplace, and Ford, not only were they building the engines that were ahead of the curve, they were also building cars that were truly ahead of the curve. Um, the Focus, you know, obviously being one, and that's one of the cars I wanted to talk about in this thing, as well as the Fiesta, where we got these two global cars sold here that really set the standard for two car classes for the better part of a decade. Um, I mean, they they were beyond where a lot of other competitors were at. Um, you know, I talked about the the Chevy Sonic being one of my biggest surprises of this era beyond the Ford Fiesta because it didn't need to be as good as what it was because it drove so well, because the controls worked properly. Uh, but the truth of the matter was the Fiesta was more fun in the back road. Um, the Fiesta was lightweight, agile, and a lot of that was a benefit from its co-development with the Mazda 2. Um, but the, the Fiesta was a great little car. And in a time frame where there f was $4 gasoline all over the place, you could buy versions of the Fiesta that got over 40 miles per gallon. Uh, and you could get them still trimmed with heated leather seats, you know, nice wheels and tires, uh, huge sunroof, a, you know, great infotainment system with a nice sound quality. Uh, you know, they really kind of identified that people wanted to get luxury-like experiences in smaller and more fuel-friendly cars, especially if they were commuting long distances. And they sold a lot of titanium trim Fiestas, I'll tell you that much. And same thing with the Focus as well. Um, as much as I would have scoffed at the idea of spending, you know, close to $30,000 on a Fiesta, or even more than that with some of the Focuses, um you know, they did it. They were moving. And you can still find them out on the road today, admittedly with some pretty big problems. And of course, that's one of the big caveats to all this is that as much as the Fiesta and the Focus were these incredible revolutionary cars within their segment that really demonstrated that an American car company can be a true contender, uh, the PowerShift transmissions ruined it. Um, the power PowerShift gearbox uh, was designed by Ford to be this ultra-fuel-efficient, ultra-reliable uh, gearbox that is essentially an automated manual uh, transmission. So the computer is engaging the clutch, selecting a gear, disengaging the clutch, and, you know, going about its business. Day-to-day uh, -day operation, if you knew and understood what it was, uh, it seemed fairly likely to me that you would be able to get away with it being mostly okay. The truth of the matter was most people expected to be a torque converter automatic, where they can just step on the gas and they go. And that is not at all how a single-clutch dry system works. It wasn't like a dual-clutch Audi or Volkswagen thing. Uh, this was one that was done on the cheap, with bad transmission cooling, bad transmission uh, 
uh, fluid, like it just Ford cut costs everywhere for this thing. And ultimately they ended up paying the price. Uh, they are having to pay out tens of thousands of dollars to some individuals to buy back these cars to replace transmission. Some of these cars are on their like second or third transmission. It is truly disgusting how bad this is. And the thing was, is that Ford themselves knew about it. The engineers warned them about it. And uh, the people did almost nothing to prevent this. And it ruined two great cars that I think should go down in history as these icons for this era. And yet there's such a huge black mark on their reliability for the majority of the cars that were sold here uh, that you can't really recommend them and speak too highly of them and it really is unfortunate because the fiesta was a lot of fun to drive i owned one for three or more than three years i loved that little car i wanted to get a focus for a very very long time but they're just i mean they're just ruined by this and they've all been tossed away and it's really quite sad and of course the flip side to that too is that as much as the normal ones are damaged uh there were the st products. Uh, this was the first time in a very, very long time that we had gotten uh, high-performance, affordable vehicles from Ford that weren't a Mustang. And the Focus ST with its, uh, what was it, a two-and-a-half-liter uh, engine? Was it was it a five-cylinder engine? No, sorry. It was a big, larger displacement. Oh my gosh, I'm all turned around now. <laughs> What's what? Uh, the ST had what? The, the, the bigger two-liter EcoBoost engine, and then the Fiesta had a 1.6 liter EcoBoost engine, right? Maybe. I don't know. It's not entirely important. Nevertheless, uh, the Focus ST and the Fiesta ST were truly magnificent vehicles, especially for the price that they cost. Uh, again, vehicles that are going to sit pretty high in the pantheon of American high-performance cars uh, for lots of folks. Uh, they are under underappreciated vehicles. I think there's definitely a crew of folks who really like the Focus ST. One of my neighbors has, seems to have three of them at any given time. Uh, the Fiesta ST as well uh, is another one that pops up occasionally. Um, you know, they're very, very good cars, and Ford did a good job with them, uh, and they should still be commended to this day for ever pulling the trigger because uh, it took some guts to do so. Uh, for a lot of other automakers, however, things were a bit of a mixed bag. You know, we saw the uh, emergence of small, fuel-efficient cars become very important. Uh, you know, the Cruze received a lot of attention for GM, same with the Sonic. Uh, we ended up getting the Spark from Korea that is, weirdly enough, actually a pretty okay little car. Uh, we got some interesting things happening, you know, obviously from Honda and Toyota. This is a little bit of their malaise period um, where they had some interesting ideas, but they just never really got executed in a way that was what I'd argue to be good enough. Um, they've kind of seemed to have come out of the other side of that now in 2019 and 2020, uh, but... Yeah, it was a weird time for them. Uh, the German car makers really seem to identify and latch onto the idea that SUVs and crossovers are going to be what saves them. And I think none other than BMW has that been a bigger deal. Uh, BMW and Mercedes, I, I, to a greater extent as well, have been so laser-focused on cutting apart the automobile pie uh, to carve out a smaller and smaller 
niche of people who want a very specific type of car uh, for them to be able to grow and expand their vehicle empire. Uh, you know, you get cars like the 3 Series Grand Touring, uh, the 4 Series, uh, what is it? There's there's too many, the Grand Coupe, the all of these weird little minutia vehicles with a weird number of engines and transmissions that are available that just don't make any sense anymore. And yet they continue to sell more and more and more of these vehicles to people who, I don't know where they're coming up with the money. I don't know who is doing what, and we'll talk about money in a little bit here, but I just cannot fathom being the kind of person who goes, you know, I'm just really interested in the idea of the 5 Series GT with the X-Drive all-wheel drive system, but the 2-liter inline-four and whatever else down there. It's just like, just buy an X3 or an X5. Just buy the one that seems to make more sense. And yet they continue to split hairs and do all these things. And, you know, there's the new uh, 2 Series coming out here in the not-too-distant future here in the U.S. that people are very, very concerned about. Uh, the 1 Series as well, to a greater extent, uh, both of them being based on a mini chassis that, you know, it's bewildering to people that a front-wheel drive BMW can be a thing in 2020. And yet that's the market that they've kind of created for themselves. Uh, all of these car companies are rushing, rushing, rushing to make these crossoverized regular cars. And in many cases, these cars are nothing more than a normal car with a slightly increased ride height and some plastic cladding to make it look like it can go off-road. Uh, Kia is doing that with the Soul, which is already kind of sort of a crossover, but not. Uh, the Mazda CX-30 is literally a Mazda 3 hatchback on stilts. Um, you know, that uh, I, I feel like I'm losing my place with how many there are. It just, they're, they're coming out of all the cracks and corners of the house at any given time. And you're over, you're almost overwhelmed with where the market has gone with crossovers and SUVs. And yes, there are ones that do make good cases for themselves. I think, like I spoke about in the previous episode, the Kia Telluride, the Hyundai Palisade, uh, they're very, very, very good for what they are. Um, but at the same time, you get things like the Chevy Blazer that are a cash grab not only on the name that it is, um, but on the size that it is, which is just a two-row, you know, basic family hauler. It's basically meant to replace the Impala in the lineup. Um, and it costs $50,000, and that's just inexcusable for what kind of car that it is, because the quality is not good in the interior. And the engine options, at least from the get-go, were not good. And in the end, you know, you're selling yourself on this idea that you need this big of a car that can do this many things that you're never truly going to use. And it's kind of getting back into that point of excess that we had in 2006 and 2007, albeit where, you know, instead of the car or I guess in this case, the crossover, the SUV getting, you know, 12 to 14 miles per gallon. Uh, it's now getting 24 uh, to 28 miles per gallon. Um, you know, I, I guess you can look at it that way, too, where is it as guilty of a thing to get a large family vehicle that's getting the gas mileage that a family sedan would have gotten, you know, 10 or 15 years ago? Not quite as much, but uh, it's... 
still not great because most people who buy these things are only riding in them by themselves. They're only getting the higher ride height because they don't like bending down or they don't think that they're going to be able to fit a car seat in the back, even though a family sedan is just as big on the inside and arguably a safer vehicle than most crossovers that they compete against. Uh, and the other thing is, is that the numbers are automatically going to be skewed because you get GM, who now only builds crossovers and SUVs, selling crossovers and SUVs on the lot, shipping those vehicles to dealers before then to say, hey, you need to move these. And of course, it's going to skew those numbers in that direction. Um, a lot of the marketing companies and research companies seem to be thinking that millennials in my age group around their early 30s don't want to buy crossovers and SUVs, and I think that is largely the case for most of us. Uh, and yet, we go out to the dealerships and we see that that's the only option, and it is it is frustrating because I would much rather have a car. I want to be as low as possible to the ground uh, to make it work, and uh, the, there's just not much there. And the other thing is, you know, as much as I would want to support an American automaker, uh, there's not really an American automaker worth supporting these days because they're not building cars and trucks. Well, trucks is a different thing. They're not really building cars that are good enough to get my 20 whatever thousand dollars I would decide to give them um, because they just don't want to build for that price point anymore. And that's truly unfortunate. So where we're at now is that money is becoming a thing. You know, the average transaction price for a new car is over $36,000. Uh, the majority of vehicles sold in the United States, unsurprisingly, are still pickup trucks. Uh, Chevrolet has lost out on its number two spot to Ram uh, because pickup truck design and execution has been so important. Ram actually outsold Ford for the first quarter of 2020. Um, the money right now is really, truly in pickup trucks. And the average transaction price for a pickup truck, I imagine, is what is greatly inflating that average tra transaction price on the whole, simply because it's almost impossible these days to find a pickup truck that costs less than $50,000. Um, my dad just bought a brand new uh, Chevy Silverado Trail Boss with the 5.3 liter V8, and uh, I think the sticker price on his was $56,000. Now, he ended up getting it for a lot less because of a GM family discount and a dealer discount because of who he works for. But uh, even at, you know, 40-ish thousand dollars, I don't really know if you're really getting that much of your money's worth. Uh, there are Rams and Fords and Chevys and GMCs and so many more that are regularly trading for north of $70,000. And these are vehicles that are designed to work on a farm, off-road, do whatever, and they are inexcusable in their execution and in their excess that you really can't fathom how insane it is that people are spending this kind of money on these kinds of things. And so living on the south side of the city of Grand Rapids, close to a town, the towns of Caledonia and Byron Center, uh, we kind of cross that territory line a little bit where people start buying bigger and fancier pickup trucks and they're buying these things you know they're leasing them for three years they turn them back in they get another one they get a slightly more expensive one because that's what's on the lot and they just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling into these crazy opulent trucks and it's just insane because these are folks who live on you know 
two acre plots of land with a 300 and whatever thousand dollar house that work a factory job and i do not understand how they have enough money to buy one of these damn things and so the new thing that we're seeing right now at the end of this inter-recessionary period and now a full recession is that loan terms are getting longer and longer and longer with lower and lower finance rates that uh, people can now suddenly go, hey, I can afford to buy this $70,000 pickup truck and it really doesn't cost that much more than getting, you know, the forty dollars or $30,000 one I probably should get. So, you know, you're looking at one of these things with an 84-month loan with 0% interest in some case, 72 months I think is the 0% interest right now. So even at 84 months, you're still spending less than one percentage point in interest. Uh, it's just unfathomable to have a car loan for that long on that kind of a vehicle because you're going to be pretty upside down on that relatively quick. Uh, the other side of that is, of course, to some extent... For some people who buy some of these cars, given how reliable current vehicles are these days and some of the powertrain warranties that come on them, I think there is a logical argument to be made where you can go, hey, you know, if I'm planning on keeping this car for 10 years and it's got a 100,000 mile warranty and I'm not going to exceed that warranty in the time frame that I have it, um, you know, maybe a seven year loan isn't the worst idea especially if I can get a brand new car that's also getting over-the-air updates from the manufacturer and the technology in the dashboard is now connected to my phone instead of being something that, you know, you got to go into the dealer every other year to spend $90 to update. Uh, you know, I'm not coming out the other side too bad. And to some extent, I can understand that a little bit. You know, if you're buying a Toyota, yes. If you're buying, uh, you know, a Honda, yeah, probably. Uh, but if you're buying a Chevy or a Ford or a Chrysler, the car companies that are really pushing those long-term loans with low interest rates, uh, that is just a financial disaster in the waiting. And I, I just can't believe that, that it's gotten to this point. And so the antithesis of all of that is two vehicles that I wanted to talk about that kind of represent fresher takes on what's going on in the auto industry. Uh, the first of which is a kind of bygone relic of a time that is now long since passed. Uh, and that is the Mitsubishi Mirage, Mirage and Mitsubishi G4. Uh, these are two cars that are literally designed to a penny. These are two cars that are designed not to impress anyone. These are two cars that are designed literally to only provide transportation. And they are, by all intents and purposes, not very good cars. Um, they were initially designed, I believe, for the Thai uh, Southeast Asian market. Uh, and they are built in Thailand and shipped worldwide. Uh, they run on a 1.3 liter, three-cylinder engine. Um, they've got a CVT or a five-speed manual. And these are the basest of base trim cars that you can get. I mean, I think the base trim one of these used to sell for under $10,000. I think it's a little bit more than that now. But for twelve or thirteen grand, you know, you're getting a car that is, in theory, up-to-date with modern safety technology. It has a 10-year warranty. You get it on some pretty decent loan terms, and they're definitely more forgiving with... Uh, folks who have uh, bad credit 
and you've got a car that's, you know, gonna run. And I haven't driven one of the Mirages, so I can't comment on how good or bad they are from behind the wheel, but I've sat in a number of them, and I have to say, there is some charm to the idea of a car that is so restrained in what it is. Uh, you know, the plastic is cheap plastic, like early 2000s cheap plastic. Uh, it does have a very modern infotainment system that actually works fairly well with Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. It has speakers with which you can listen to audio, which is no more or less than what you need. Uh, the seats are seats. Uh, they're more comfortable than a park bench, but maybe less than that of a, you know, slightly more expensive Chevrolet Spark. Uh, you know, the car makes sense in some ways, and I, I think there is a lot of honor in being like, you know what, I'm going to buy a $13,000 hatchback. <laughs> and, you know, compared to another $13,000 hatchback that might be a used Toyota Yaris, yes, the Yaris is well and truly a better car, but that Yaris has probably also got close to 100,000 miles on it and doesn't have a warranty. And if you don't have to worry about that for a few years, so be it, you know? It, it's going to work for some people in their favor, I think, to get these Mitsubishis. And, you know, on the other hand is they look kind of cute. You know, they've got some very interesting styling being done to them that I think works quite well in their favor. Uh, and in the end, you know, they're not the worst cars ever, uh, is maybe a good way to see that. You know, the old adage, I guess it's maybe a new adage is a better way to say that, is that there are truly no bad cars on sale anymore in the United States. And while there are some vehicles that might test that in different ways, uh, you know, the Mirage I don't think is truly the absolute worst thing in the world because if you wind the clock back 20 years and spent whatever the equivalency would be uh in money back then as it is today uh you'd be getting a pretty bad car and you know again not the worst thing taking a little bit of a step up from that in terms of you know design and engineering restraint and building a car that is actually pretty good but doesn't go beyond where it needs to uh is the nissan kicks uh, the Nissan Kicks is a car that I love to love. Some people love to hate it, but it's one that, again, you know, it doesn't it doesn't push any boundaries. It doesn't need to. It's it's based on an older Nissan chassis. It's the one that was underneath the uh, Versa Note. Uh, it uses the same 1.6 liter engine. It uses the same CVT transmission. Uh, it it's grown a little bit in size, but the actual weight of the vehicle is down quite a bit. Uh, the car weighs well under 3,000 pounds. I think it's, uh, what is it, 2,600 something uh, dry. So, I mean, you're, you're still under 3,000 with everything all in it. And in the end, you know, driving it, as I have driven one, the transmission works great. You know, you wouldn't know it's a CVT unless you were really trying to press hard on it. Uh, the ride is relatively comfortable. You can definitely see where costs were cut on the interior. You can definitely see where costs were cut in the uh, back of the vehicle and in some of the exterior bits. But in the end, you know, you've got to tick every single option box. You know, getting the leatherette seats, getting the Bose uh, stereo thing for the driver's seat, you know, getting the upsized wheels, the roof rack, all that stuff to cross 25 grand and you know the reality is that getting a fully loaded sr trim and not getting the crazy extras runs you just under 24 grand and that i think is 
really the sweet spot with a lot of cars these days because if you go up in size you're going to get like a low trim Corolla or Civic that's you know good enough but it lacks some features that the Nissan has versus you know something that's completely below that like a Versa well the Versa is now actually quite nice but you know it just hits different it's refreshing to see a crossover that is appropriately sized that doesn't weigh too much that doesn't have a have a crazy powertrain in it that you know you can plug your phone into you can put two friends in the back you can go drive to detroit have a nice weekend and get back in one piece and it's it's just nice to see something that's been handled so well by a car company that really needs a big hit and it hasn't been a big hit um but you know of course they blame different weird things on it you know nissan on the whole is again another mess that's deserving of an episode of itself to talk about where we're at today in this inner recessionary period but um yeah i, I don't know they they accused at one point in time the new ultima sales of not being good enough because the the uh, kicks took some sales away from it and i thought that was really quite funny because if you're going in looking to spend 23 grand you're not going to walk out with an ultima uh kicks is going to seem much nicer but at the same time if you want a full-size sedan like an Altima, you're not going to get a Kicks either. So, I don't know. It's crazy to me. But anyway, it's just really refreshing that two cars out in the market seem to know what they need to be. They don't take it too seriously. And they've found relative success within their markets. And, you know, I'm hoping more car companies continue to figure out that kind of thing for themselves. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's ultimately a pretty good place to be. So last big thing to kind of talk about as we wind down some general things in this era is, of course, electric cars. Uh, electric cars have been a thing on and off for more than a century of automobiles, and uh, no company has been more, uh, well, at the center of attention, at the center of the change uh, than Tesla. You know, winding the clock back to this recessionary period, Tesla, of course, did sell the Roadster, which was a modified Lotus Elise with a big-ass battery and electric motor uh, that, you know, was styled in an interesting way and captured an interesting number of customers. And Tesla continued to dance with the devil in terms of, you know, sales and reliability and quality and so much else. And uh, somehow, <laughs> Elon Musk managed to get the Model S out. And the Model S was not only a massive sales success, um, it also, you know, really launched the company into the stratosphere. And, you know, just looking at the stock price over the last couple of years, you know, it's pretty evident to where people seem to think Tesla can go based on what Tesla has done. And a lot of it is very questionable. A lot of it is also very good. And it's, it's interesting how Tesla seemingly came out of nowhere, brought electric cars to the forefront of the marketplace, and now, as other car companies come in, which is what Elon Musk has talked about at length, you know, back in the day, he said, you know, he wants GM to come in, he wants uh, Volkswagen to come in, he wants all these car companies to come in to really challenge him. And now that there are actual challengers in the marketplace, he seems not too happy about it, uh, is maybe a nicer way to put it. Uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, the Model S, the Model 3, the Model X, the Model Y, uh, these are cars that are at the forefront of electric vehicle technology. Uh, Tesla has figured out a way to program them, whether it's 
through the batteries, the electric motors, all the other relevant computer systems in the cars to be very efficient, to charge very quickly, to be pretty reliable. The build quality isn't great, but, you know, it's getting better with the Model Y. Uh, In the end, you know, they charge most of their cars a fair price i think for what they are especially the model 3 you know you can get a cheap one for 36 grand or so that goes over 200 miles of electric range and you know it's gonna hold its resale value and in the end you know it's not the worst thing you can get but the other thing is is that for a little bit more you know you can get a chevy bolt that comes with a warranty that you can get serviced at any dealership in the united states um You've got Volkswagen coming in with the ID4 that might radically shake up the way that the electric car market works. Uh, because of their Dieselgate settlement, they had to really reinvest in this technology. And they're promising to build the quote-unquote people's car and make it electric. And, you know, Tesla's worried about it. And it's it's been interesting to see the market start with, you know, a hundred-plus-thousand-dollar sport coupe and sedan and then move to a you know, 50, that 50 ish thousand dollar option. And that $50,000 option, you know, includes the Model 3. Uh, it includes the BMW i3. Uh, it includes, you know, cars like the Jaguar I Pace, which I guess is a little bit more expensive than that. But like $50,000 seemed to be the sweet spot a few years ago. And now the sweet spot is $35,000, which also does include the Tesla Model 3. But um, you know, that that price continues to get lower. And this year in 2020, uh, the, the Mini Cooper SE is hitting the streets in the United States, and that is meant to be a $20,000 electric vehicle. Of course, that's before the tax, or uh, with tax incentives and all that, it hits 20 grand. But, you know, at that price point, you're getting 115 miles of range in a brand new car with a warranty, with a battery that's proven itself, an electric motor that's proven itself, and it's for folks that, you know, don't need to go and drive from Michigan to Dallas, Texas and back over a couple of weeks. Um, it, it, it's for people who know what they want. And I think that's been the really interesting thing with electric cars in this era is that they were developed as this luxury kind of status thing. And the, the understanding was that this was where we needed to go. We need to get carbon neutral. We need to do the right thing. And then it became more affordable and the supercharger network became a big deal for tesla and people started going hey you know i could actually drive one of these day to day and then people figured out you can plug them in at home and then i you know i don't drive more than 40 miles a week i can get away with something like a leaf or a fiat 500e and it's just continued to slide further and further downward and you know we are running exceptionally close i think to the tipping point where you know you walk into the chevy dealer and you go, hey, I want to spend $40,000, you know, on a new car, what can I get? And they're going to, you know, show you a tarted up Chevy Equinox or a mid-trim Blazer. Or you can get the new Bolt EUV that, you know, might have a suggested retail $40,000, but there's a little bit of an incentive from GM. There's the tax credit that you might get from it. Uh, and that kicks it down into the, you know, mid to low 30s. And you go, oh, wait, I don't have to spend $4,000 a year on gasoline. Uh, My insurance might be a little bit better, but in the end, you know, or a little bit more expensive, but in the end, I'm saving 
so much more of a lifetime of the vehicle. And then you get into the fact that they don't require oil changes, you don't have to change the brakes as often, they don't go through tires quite as fast, and ultimately, they just make more financial sense. And that's when everything changes, and that's when the demand push gets weirder and... You know, we're, we're, we're close to it. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting really close to it. And it's been really exciting to see that track. And, you know, Tesla, for all of the frustration that they cause at any given time, uh, they have been at the forefront of figuring this system out and getting it done right. And, you know, Porsche and Volkswagen, I think, are going to be the second wave beneficiaries to this. I think Ford will be on that wave as well. That'll really push things further. GM's got some great technology that's coming down the line. Um, but that's that's the next era of cars. I think we're going to see the great electrification being the next big storyline um, that really is going to determine where we're headed and where where things are going to go in this next era. Because uh, yeah, the even the idea of a of a of a ton and a half pickup truck, you know, being the best towing vehicle is now something that might be threatened as well. And when that eventually changes, I think I think it's pretty much done. So. Yeah, that's kind of a look back at some of the vehicles, some of the interesting trends, some of the interesting storylines that are in there. I, you know, again, I can't cover every single little thing, but uh, it's worth mentioning in some cases, especially uh, smart vehicles that are, you know, not too much, like the Kicks and the Mirage, uh, that you know just seem to strike a good balance in doing things the right way. So. Yeah, I appreciate you guys coming along with uh, this little run of stories over the last three days. If you want to listen back to the previous episodes, uh, you can do so at anchor.fm slash salvage title. And you can follow along with me on Twitter at twitter.com slash YSSMAN. And I'm also the same tagline at medium.com where I hope to post more long form stories like this in the future. Anyway, guys, I thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will see you on the next proper episode of The Salvage Title, uh, hopefully sometime soon. Till then, have a great night.